You're listening to The Yoga Room with Mark Stevens, a place for exploring evocative and provocative ideas and conversations about yoga, life, myth, science, and making the world a better place for all. My guest today, Ayla Benjamin, I first met many years ago in a yoga teacher training program here in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, I had a sense that there was something really, truly remarkable about this woman and what she would do in the world, but little did I know, little did I know could I imagine all that she would go on to do. And I want to give a little bit of background to this uh, as a, by way of introducing Ayla Benjamin. We have in the United States today the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have approximately one-fifth of all incarcerated people in the world incarcerated in the United States, and it just it simply has not always been this way. Um, that is, well, from around 1925 to 1975, there were approximately 100 people per 100,000 people who were incarcerated. Today, it's almost 10 times that many. It's about 900 or so people per 100,000 who are incarcerated, again, by far the highest rate in the world. And meanwhile, there are a variety of other social issues and social problems that intersect incarceration rates in the United States. And there are many people in the world who are working to try to have an impact on that. Ayla is the executive director of Boundless Freedom Project. It's a a nonprofit organization that's working with people who are impacted by incarceration. And they serve hundreds of incarcerated people in 15 prisons across California, as well as in other places where they're working not only around support for those who have been impacted by incarceration, but in trying to change the conditions of incarceration themselves. It's trying to reduce the reliance on incarceration that we find today in what some refer to as a prison industrial complex. And going beyond the work that they had been doing for many years in response to the pandemic, they've expanded their services, providing supplies like books and yoga mats and cushions. They do indeed connect the dots of yoga with this, and we'll be going into that. They provide mentoring and community services to previously incarcerated people. They provide emergency financial assistance to people that are returning citizens who've been incarcerated, and a variety of other programs and services that rather than my summarizing them now, we'll soon hear about directly from Ayla. Ayla, while she was here in Santa Cruz, after completing teacher training with me, she began teaching yoga in local jails and prisons, including at the Salinas Valley Prison, uh, which is a large prison here in the central, in the Salinas Valley of California, and also at that time involved in other efforts that revolve essentially around matters of race and racism that clearly intersects matters of incarceration. If only we can see clearly that there's a highly disproportionate representation of people of color among the incarcerated population in contrast to those who are not people of color. Now, I want to make a connection with this to yoga in that we often think of yoga as, just well, of course, it's this beautiful, wonderful practice that we do, and it seems to be just such a beautiful history and all just everything is all quite beautiful in it. But I want to suggest that we also can see, if we look honestly at the roots of yoga, there are similar patterns of racism in the earliest roots of yoga, that the very practices are often connected to what is called caste. And caste is, in many ways, predicated upon race. And what we find from the earliest writings in yoga are caste-based prescriptions for who can do yoga, who can't do yoga, or what kind of yoga one should do based on these very factors. And one can, if they read closely, find this in writings such as the Bhagavad Gita, one of the most sacred books to all of yoga, and some religions. 
So where I go with this is to suggest then that it wasn't just back then, but rather now. And if we look around honestly at the yoga world today, especially in North America and in Western Europe, classes, workshops, retreats, all are predominantly enjoyed by privileged people, by white people and people of financial privilege. And we find very little in the way of accessible yoga practices that is physically accessible practices and often culturally accessible practices for people who are not white and privileged. And so these are topics that we, I'm very interested in exploring with Ayla because she's also been involved around larger issues of racism. She's from Minneapolis. She presently lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the heartland of the United States. And in that was directly connected to some of the matters involving uh, George Floyd, his murder at the hands of police, white police, as well as the related protests that ensued from there. Ayla, I'm so happy that you've devoted some time to join me here on the Yoga Room podcast. I'm very much looking forward to hearing about your work, your background, and all that you're presently envisioning and doing. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm calling in today from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is on Dakota and Ojibwe land. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota. I was raised in rural Minnesota and then the metropolitan areas where I went to school and received my education, a bachelor's in journalism, um, studied in the School of Journalism before I took a sharp left turn and went into a path of service, really, after graduating from college. I started to explore first um, food justice and food accessibility, started to understand sort of the food angle of wellness and culture and, and how food connects to people thriving. Um, and it was while I was exploring that work um, while working on a farm that was run by Heifer International, which is a development organization, I started to really get into my yoga and meditation practices. And while I was getting into my yoga and meditation practices, all sorts of things started to shift in my personal life and in my own sense of um, well-being and seeing things a little bit more clearly, I thought, as they were. And from there, I ended up uh, taking a trip to Southeast Asia where I was able to visit some monasteries and really dive much deeper into my yoga practice and meditation practices, learning about Buddhism and the monastic lifestyle. And from there is actually how I ended up in Santa Cruz, California, where I decided to take the leap and dive into a yoga teacher training with you. And while I was in Santa Cruz, I was looking for a sense of community. I wanted to connect with the community and with like-minded folks. And that's how I ended up connecting with the local meditation center in Santa Cruz, Insight Santa Cruz, where they had a pen pal program for incarcerated individuals. So at that point in my life, I had already experienced racism personally, and I had also had some people close to me who had been very brutalized by the police in an unfair way. Um, and 
this particular friend who was brutalized by the police ended up then with three felonies. And luckily he was able to fight his case and uh, did not end up having to serve time with those three felonies. But it was a big eye opener for me of how quickly someone's life can change and how significantly any sort of involvement with incarceration or the legal system um, can have on someone's life in a very detrimental way. So between my personal yoga practice developing my insight into these systems of oppression that are related to food and policing and power differentials, and then my desire to get involved in a community of like-minded individuals, I was presented with the opportunity to actually go into a prison and share some of the practices that had been benefiting my life. At that point, I knew very clearly that this was completely outside of my comfort zone, the idea of going into a maximum security men's prison as a young female, uh, relatively new practitioner was kind of scary, but I also knew that there was going to be growth for me right outside that comfort zone, and so I leaned in. And when I started leaning into this work and actually going inside the prisons to share meditation and yoga practices, uh, it really set me on a completely new journey, which ultimately led me to where I am today, which is the executive director for Boundless Freedom Project. And there are so many things that I learned through that experience um, from the very beginning of sitting in the circle with our group participants, breathing together and seeing how with just a few conscious breaths, the entire energy in a room can completely change and how important that is for people who are living in such an intense and traumatizing, violent environment such as prison. It's quite the remarkable journey. I'm really, again, in awe of what you're doing, what your path has been, Ayla. And you know, there are many people in the world who have, I will suggest to you, similar experiences that clearly you're not alone in having experienced racism. And clearly you're not alone as a woman of color who's also in, immersed in the yoga community. Not everyone. And, and also not alone necessarily in having a background in, um, in service and in, in some qualities of activism. But it still kind of leaves me with the question of, what is it that led you to get engaged with this particular kind of, of work around matters of incarceration as the focus of your work? Uh, I'm very I'm fascinated by that. And as you know, I had a Yoga Inside Foundation and I started in 90, 1997 that brought yoga into prisons and all, all around the U.S. with others as well. But it was with a different sort of a, a, a set of insights into it and a different motivation to it, I think, in many ways. I'm really interested in hearing more about your kind of how, what is it about you that brought you to do that work early on? Like what was really stirring in you? Why that focus rather than so many of the other things that you might have focused on? Thank you for that question. Um, why prisons instead of all these other areas really comes down to me, uh, for me, in that while I was sitting in these early days with the group in Salinas Valley State Prison, um, so again, a level four maximum security men's facility, we're sitting in a group um, and part of what really started to click for me that really firmly set me on that path is that there really wasn't much 
at all that was different from me and these individuals who were inside the prisons. And I knew that it was by luck or the privilege that I have, the access to certain types of education or opportunities that I felt lucky to receive, that I was not sitting in prison. Um, and part of what continues to be true, especially here in America, is that especially being a woman of color, um, I'm not done being at risk of incarceration. Actually, the um, population of women and girls who are being incarcerated has increased by almost 800% and is the largest growing group of incarcerated individuals in this country. So between knowing that there's really not anything different between me and the individuals who are in prison currently and knowing that systemically in this society I'm still at risk of ending up in prison and then the third kind of pillar that really kind of clicked for me was I had been going through my own personal experience with yoga and meditation and using these tools to find more ease and well-being and healthy relationships and insight and healing inside my life. And I knew that um, being able to share these tools with others would have a benefit that would ripple out. Um, and so I felt incredibly motivated to share some of what I had experienced and learned and tools that also helped me cope with the understanding and the reality of systemic racism, of mass incarceration with individuals who are currently in that situation. Now, the other thing that I think is kind of an underlying value of mine as well is um, there's this quote about our liberation is all tied up together um, and how if you know you're going in somewhere because you want to help go away we don't need help but if you want to come in and roll up your sleeves and get to work because you know that our liberation is tied up together then let's do it and that's kind of the underlying feeling I have it does not seem possible for me to truly feel liberated or free in this society while there are still millions of human beings living in cages. And so for that reason, um, it felt like this was kind of the most important work. And at that time, there really weren't that many other people stepping up to do that work. So that's kind of how I ended up. At first, I was just going in as a very new. I was still in my yoga teacher training. I had never formally taught meditation or mindfulness. Um, how I started from there and now ended up in this position of an executive director because I kept stepping up to do that work. And as I kept stepping up, because there's really not that many people currently involved, or there wasn't, there are other organizations and people doing this work, but specifically in the yoga, meditation, mindfulness, in incarceration, opportunities kept opening up for me and doors kept kind of opening. And I was able to then, after doing it for not even that much time, see the impact that this work was having on folks. So for me, when I began, it was a weekly meditation and mindfulness group. And over the course of a couple of months, a couple of years, I could see the group members that I'd be sitting with 
change in a really positive way. And they would come back to the group with stories from their parents about how they're noticing these changes or all of a sudden they're able to talk to their kids in a different way or all of a sudden their stress levels that had been, you know, raising their blood pressure to the extreme, all of a sudden that stuff starts to lower. And so with that positive feedback of seeing the impact of going into the prisons and sharing these tools, it became kind of a no-brainer where it was, this is the work that needs to be done right now, and I was ready to do it. It's interesting to me that you chose to focus, as, as I understand it, on incarcerated men, males, men's prisons. I'm curious about that and wonder also what work you've done, if any, with incarcerated women and just what the difference in experience is for you in going in and interacting, teaching, sharing, holding space, uh, and sharing space with people who are incarcerated, women in contrast to men. So I started with the men's populations because that was the opportunity that was first available to me. I really didn't choose that specifically it just so happened that the volunteers that were in the area were serving a men's facility in california even though the population of incarcerated women is growing exponentially there still are at this particular moment way less women incarcerated than men so in california there are about 34 adult institutions and there are really only two of those that are women's facilities um so that's kind of why majority of our work has involved men and men's facilities because that right now is the largest population. Um, for me as a woman, um, certainly there were at first concerns about, you know, going into that space as a woman and knowing what we know about how yoga and meditation can really open people up. And, you know, I had some concerns at first about going in and doing that work with men specifically. Um, but what I found was as long as I maintained my very clear boundaries about what I'm doing there, why I'm going in and what's my role within that group, and I was able to communicate that clearly. There was no mixed messages. There's no fuzzy lines. It was very clear. I'm there to teach. I'm there to share and I'm there to connect as a human, I'm not there to buddy up or, you know, anything like that, um, that I really never personally felt unsafe, uncomfortable. I was met with the utmost respect. And frankly, inside of men's prisons, I think having feminine energy can be very nurturing for the groups. You know, it, it's not an energy that they receive a lot. You know, inside the prisons, a lot of the guards can be males, obviously the male population, very authoritative environment. And then you can bring in some of the softer, um, more nurturing energy. And I think that actually it really was a benefit for many of our group participants to get both. Um, Boundless Freedom Project has in the past um, had pr programs running in women's facilities and since the pandemic, unfortunately, we have not reinstated all of our programs in the women's facilities or two of the sites that have been slowest to get back on board. Uh, but there certainly are differences in working with each of those populations. Um, 
in particular, I believe that dealing or working with women's populations, there are higher levels of sexual trauma and um, sometimes with, you know, male facilitators going into those environments that can become re-triggering um, and with female facilitators going into those environments, it can be a little bit more safe and connecting. Um, so there certainly are differences, but my belief is that really it comes down to sort of the same things no matter what. It's about meeting the individuals as humans and connecting with them where they are right now, not judging them by the worst thing that they've ever done or what they did to get in there. It's treating them as the person who's standing in front of me today and letting that be how they're being seen, how they're being honored, and then sharing these practices. And as long as you can do that in an informed and safe and mindful way where, again, you're really clear about why am I doing this? What am I going in there for? I think the practices and the potential benefit can almost transcend, you know, the gender binary. There are a few questions that are coming to my mind listening to you. One regards helping prepare to train uh, teachers or facilitators, if it's meditation, for instance, to go into these institutional environments. And, and the other has to do with the types of changes that do occur and, and getting more into that. So I want to I be able to explore both of these. Again, with Yoga Inside Foundation, we didn't think through some of these questions very well at the beginning. And I recall we were recruiting teachers to go into, at that time, juvenile institutions, primarily serving incarcerated men, young men, and occasionally young women. But we didn't talk about things like, what do you wear? And so, for example, we had teachers going in wearing, well, their yoga garb. Like, think today's athleisure in a prison environment. A woman in a men's prison wearing athleisure, probably not, well, let me just say, not a good idea. And so there were things like that, as well as what you referred to, maintaining very clear boundaries, being abundantly clear about your role and more, understanding the tension that can be there with staff, with guards, some of whom don't appreciate any kind of services that give anything other than punishment or a sense of being you know, held in their place as incarcerated people. So I wonder just on that, how you have approached uh, your own self-training as well as the training of others to help them be effective and respected and mutual respect with others there. How have you gone about that? What's involved? Because I'm imagining many people listening are going to be interested in how do I get involved with this and just kind of get a a better sense of how do you help prepare people? First, I'll speak on what I did and then I can speak to what Boundless Freedom Project as an organization does. So for me, um, it became really important that I started an educational process before I even stepped foot in the door. So before I started going into the prison, but after I decided I think this is definitely something I want to do, I started reading books. I got the new Jim Crow. I was reading Our Prisons Obsolete. I was trying to understand what exactly am I stepping into and doing some of my own work around privilege before I even get through those doors. So even though I had the experience of feeling like there's so much similar between me and my groups that I would be sitting with, I also had to acknowledge and do work around 
there are differences as well because I'm not sitting in that environment and I get to walk out and go home at the end of our session as well as again I have an education I have been raised in a relatively um financially stable environment I have had lots of experiences that have put me at an advantage really in society and I needed to acknowledge that and be clear about that before I went inside the prisons um, in regards to being a female and going inside the prisons, again, I knew that I did not want to be sexualized. I did not want anyone to get distracted by my physical form, that I really wanted the focus to be on the group experience and the practices. And so I made a conscious effort um, to find a kind of quote-unquote uniform that worked for me. So I would end up wearing kind of the same type of thing pretty much every week, which was loose-fitting. I was a loose-fitting jumpsuit, actually, uh, very comfortable, but loose. I would not go in with jewelry or makeup or any, you know, thing that would really be bringing attention to myself or my physical form. And again, I did a lot of sitting with the question of why am I doing this? Why do I feel like I have something? One, why do I feel like I have something to offer? What do I really know? And then two, like, what am I, am, is there something I'm trying to get out of this experience? And each time I went into the prison, I would take a pause before I stepped foot in the door. Uh, an actual, we'd, we'd have a little mindful moment outside the prison gates, and I would check in with myself every time and say, okay, I'm here to connect. I'm here to witness. I'm here to share, and that's it. I'm not here to feel good about myself and what I'm doing. I'm not here to necessarily change anyone's mind. I'm not here to bring, you know, connections home with me or stories home with me. I'm here to connect human to human. And I really feel like that continually coming back to my intention and having that be something that I would revisit over and over again and making a point to be doing educational work with myself outside of the group um, helped those boundaries be very clear. And my perception is that from that really clear place and having those strong boundaries and knowing what I'm going in there for, it actually allowed for deeper connections to transpire and, and to it actually helped, I believe, um, pull out some you know connection, vulnerability, openness from others because there wasn't any work that really needed to be done to try and figure me out. Um, which is something that we've heard, you know, sometimes happens uh, inside of our groups. So with Boundless Freedom Project, one of the things that we have been able to do to address this particular piece is we've actually brought on board um, staff members who have been part of our programs while they're incarcerated. And so now with any volunteers who are coming in to the prisons as part of Boundless Freedom Project, we have a robust training that's led by people who had been in prison to help volunteers understand what is the right way to show up? What are the right things to be talking about? What are other things that are going on that we might not be aware of in that environment? And we're able to now get the feedback about 
certain behaviors or mannerisms or style choices that people might be going into the prisons with that might actually be um, distracting from what is the actual purpose of that group. Um, so training, education, those are huge. But again, that being really clear about your intention, as well as, um, you know, I think because so many people who either have the time to go volunteer or um, have the funds to go drive to some of these remote places tend to be privileged, sometimes retired um, people who can take that time and, and take those resources to go do that work. Um, one of the things that I think is really important that I encourage everyone to do is to really engage with anti-racism work outside of the group and again be learning about mass incarceration and how this is a systemic problem that really affects everyone in our society and not just the people who are sitting inside the actual cages. The work you're describing, I'm going to mention again the Bhagavad Gita because the Bhagavad Gita also discusses karma yoga. Um, there are other places where we find similar concepts that it's not in giving service about what you're going to get out of it. It's about being of service. And so the idea that you're asking yourself, what am I getting out of this is to me very profound that we have seen, I think we still do with some service organizations, including yoga and meditation services in prison and other such other institutional environments we can see where the motivation might have been more about me, that a teacher wishes to have that as a source of pride, which isn't to say it's necessarily a bad thing, but let's say that they want it even almost primarily as a source of, of pride, resume building, gaining greater cachet with their peers or something like that. And I, I can appreciate that, again, there's a vast array of motivations that most people are, I think, genuinely motivated, that is genuinely meaning that they, they have as their greatest motivation support for the people that they're looking to serve, not just for themselves. So the idea of, of witnessing and sharing and being attentive and being supportive, um, beautiful qualities, and I think these are often things we can't teach. We either kind of have them or don't. We can inspire them. I think the I think certainly fine. I think I know rather that you inspire them as do others that work with boundless freedom, other types of projects like this for sure. A few things, other things that has come come to mind is uh, and that you have mentioned. There is in the incarcerated among the incarcerated population tremendous trauma, and of course in the popular imagination, I'll suggest that many people consider that those who are in prisons, who are incarcerated, that they are primarily uh, predators, uh, victimizers. And it's it probably really important to peel back some layers from that and appreciate that most people who will become victimizers and predators, and we can certainly probably agree that there are many people who are incarcerated who have been predatory and victimizers, but they themselves earlier or sometime in their life have themselves been subject to predation, violence, a variety of conditions in their lives that have made things very, very, very difficult for them. In California, I think it was one, our system here was once called the Bureau of Prisons, and now it's called something like the the uh, uh, Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. 
which is an interesting shift in language, it suggests that there, there's going to be an effort to help make people's lives better, to help prepare people who are incarcerated to transition out into the world, rehabilitation, that in some way it helps them to move forward in their lives in, in, in positive, healthy ways. Well, again, as echoing you here, so many people who are incarcerated, while perhaps predatory, have themselves been preyed upon and most definitely have experiences of deep, significant trauma in their lives, deeply embodied trauma and psychological and physical and other issues that, if they're not addressed, will likely cause them to, well, both suffer more themselves as individuals and probably to cause suffering among others out there in the world. So as you're, you know quite well, there's a whole realm of kind of trauma-sensitive yoga. Brendan Abram will be a future guest. He's written a book titled Teaching Trauma-Sensitive Yoga that really important insights from all of this. And I'm just curious how, now coming more to the level of working directly with those you're serving, what, how do you approach the teaching itself? How do you address matters of trauma, whether you're working with incarcerated men or women, how do you sort of work in the practice itself? And especially, again, with many people thinking with their impressions of prisoners or what they've gathered from TV or film, what are the conditions you encounter physically, emotionally, mentally? How do you work with them? Where does the yoga, where does the contemplative practice touch them? How? Please expand upon that. How, through the yoga and other sorts of practices that you offer, are you helping people to have better lives and deal with their their trauma. What you were saying is absolutely correct. You know, that even if someone is in prison and they have caused serious harm, they have done something violent, they may have taken a life, they have hurt people. It is my belief, and there's a quote about this, that no one enters violence for the first time by enacting it. That in my experience, every time I peeled back some of those layers with individuals or they started to peel back those layers themselves, there is hurt that was done to them first. And um, so knowing that um, and knowing that the prison environment is inherently traumatizing, we're removing people from society, putting them in actual cages in such an intense environment where people are pitted against each other there's violence being enacted upon them from the guards as well as from each other there's so much hyper vigilance there's so much scarcity and insecurity and there's so much suffering and so again as an outsider coming into the prisons i think it's crucial to know that you are going to be facing trauma, that there will be trauma showing up in your group, showing up with your participants. And as a facilitator, it's really not up to me to pull that out of anyone. It's up to me just to know that that's likely present and then to act accordingly. And so how that actually shows up. So when I first started going into the prisons, again, I was still in my yoga teacher training, and I knew that likely there's going to be different injuries inside the bodies that I'm working with. I heard from different people about gunshot wounds or, again, someone's been brutalized or, you know, there was just this riot on the yard. So there's going to be physical injuries that likely are going to be coming up. And in the prison environment, any sort of weakness 
any sort of injury, that is a target. And so it's really not common for people to talk about that. So for example, as we're in our group and we might be doing some gentle movements and I know because of a previous conversation an individual has been brutalized by the police. But I know as we're doing things, he's not going to be babying that injury. He's not going to be trying to keep anything slowed down or, you know, accommodating it. They're going to be trying to be as strong as possible and doing everything as fully as possible. So then as the facilitator, what I did, what I did kind of the approach that I took was to scale everything back. So we started with very, very gentle postures. We were mostly seated and we just started with trying to create a space where the individuals could re-familiarize themselves with themselves and do so in a way that again is very gentle it's very not pushing it's very not intense it's just calm cool collected easy yoga and then even with that type of you know very gentle yoga still stuff comes up we know this you don't have to be doing handstands and full wheels to get a deep yoga practice or to have things open up for you and so then again as the facilitator i would try to normalize things coming up so you know as we're getting into things as we're maybe opening up the heart space or you know getting more into the shoulders and the necks you know just normalizing stuff might come up and if it comes up that's okay and and trying to normalize that experience so as a facilitator going into the prisons um and knowing that trauma is going to be present again there's a certain responsibility and obligation that i felt i had to understand how does trauma show up in the body how can we be teaching it in a way that's trauma informed and come into the prisons prepared with that knowledge one of the things that was kind of a remarkable moment for me with the group at Salinas Valley State Prison so again level four maximum security prison that for many years had a reputation of being the most violent in the state of California and there was a particular moment with our group that I remember so clearly, specifically about trauma, where there had been increases of violence on the yard. Um, so meaning there were riots and stabbings and people, a lot of people were getting hurt. And there's this sense that there might be some racial wars starting back up. And our group participants were in our program and talking about this, talking about the state of things, how it was on the yard in that moment. And one of the group members started describing how he's been feeling, you know, as this stress level was going on. And basically what he started to describe to me sounded like disassociation. It sounded like that was kind of his kind of just trying to detach from what's going on, not really feeling fully engaged. You know, you could tell he was in a kind of fight or flight type mode. And so I, you know, picked up on, okay, that sounds to me kind of like disassociation. I'm not a clinical professional, so I'm not diagnosing anything, but just from my own experiences, I kind of recognized that. And so I asked, how many of you know about the word trauma 
And no one knew, no one in that environment had the understanding of what trauma is, which was so surprising to me uh, because of what I knew of how traumatizing that environment is and how likely instances of violence are for individuals who have been in there and the, um, the common experience of you know anyone who has committed harm of being harmed previously. And so part of what I started to realize is that there really isn't much in terms of education, even amongst the individuals who are incarcerated about trauma. And so that was an opportunity as well. So again, not being a clinician, but being a movement or meditation facilitator, um, there's ways that, again, we can bring some of that knowledge in and, and it helps to make sense then when things do start to come up or you know, fight or flight reflexes kick in. Um, and then, you know, the other piece that I think is important to think about when we're talking about trauma and incarceration is that the trauma of incarceration is even beyond just the physical. There's a trauma that comes along with being removed from community, being moved into isolation and having that connection to your humanity completely destroyed. So throughout this conversation, you've heard us talking about individuals who are incarcerated and dehumanization. So the opposite of that is dehumanization. And that is a very common thing that happens inside the prisons. So what I mean by that is within the prison system, there are many, many ways that the prison is set up that removes an individual sense of personal identity. It removes their humanness. They put the same clothes on everyone. They give them a number. You're no longer referred to as your name. You're separated by racial groups that look like you. Doesn't matter where you grew up or how you identify. You're just separated and distilled down to just a object and that's how people are treated while they're incarcerated and so and that's a traumatizing experience having your humanity removed is a traumatizing experience and so there's another opportunity for individuals who are actually wanting to go in and serve the prisons or in carceral environments but also for community members as a whole, where there's a chance for us to address some of that trauma, the psychological, the emotional trauma of incarceration. And one of the ways that we've been doing it here in this conversation is through our language. So in the prisons, oftentimes you'll hear individuals referred to as inmates, um, prisoners, criminals, offenders, perpetrators, you know, there are all these terms that are used both in the prisons and in society that diminish the individual. It takes away the humanity. And so one of the small things we can do both out on the outside in our communities, as well as working with anybody who's impacted is by shifting our language and using words like an individual who is impacted by incarceration or someone who is currently incarcerated, friends, families, brothers, sisters. These are people who are in prisons, not criminals, not prisoners, not inmates. And even though they are people who are in the prisons, there it's also true that some of these people have caused harm. And so while we're 
looking at all of this and thinking about all of this, I think it's also important to acknowledge that harm has been done in a lot of these situations. There are a lot of people who are in prison as a result of systemic racism and um, overly policing certain populations. And there are also some people who are in prison who have really done some horrible things. And both can be true. And as a society, then we, I think, have an opportunity to acknowledge that both are true, that someone can cause harm and have done something bad, but they can still be a person who's worthy of their humanity and who has the potential to change and transform their life. There's uh, some important comparisons, I think, to be made between how we approach matters of, of um, violence and crime here in the United States in contrast to the way that it's addressed in many other parts of the world. And again, in California, we have this Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Uh, some question whether there's really much significant work done in most of these institutions relating to, well, what are we talking about? Helping people who have been in trouble, troubling, potentially extremely violent, and with all kinds of other you know, things that they've done that have been involving crime and all, how most of these people will eventually get out. Most will get out. Uh, how do we want them to be? Who do we, what kind of characteristics do we want people to have when they come out of prison? And if their entire experience in prison has been one of being dehumanized, removing personal identity, losing sense of self-esteem, being treated as an object, being traumatized throughout the experience, uh, in, including with the language surrounding them there as well as out in the community that has them defined as other, not as part of our community, what's the hope there that they're going to come back out into the community and be, um, it, and not recidivate, and not, not, not recidivate, not that is commit new offenses that lead them to be reincarcerated. Now, I just want to mention something that my, you, you were talking, you might not have you've heard, but maybe you did. A few minutes ago, as you were speaking, I heard through my headphones sirens in your neighborhood, I'm guessing. Um, you're in Minneapolis. Uh, I'm, I'm going to shift here just a little bit, not to take us away necessarily from discussing of how, how we address matters of objectification and traumatizing, how we come with a yogic principle of ahimsa and a Buddhist principle of ahimsa, of not hurting, of helping people to become less hurt and less hurtful in all of what we do. But I want to shift it a little bit because you're talking about traumatizing and triggers. And I often hear sirens. They don't traumatize me. I'm a white male, by the way. Um, privileged in so many ways that I don't even recognize because it's just natural. I'm lucky and privileged in that way in our society. Um, I hear a siren. I'm not traumatized. I see a cop car. It's like, okay, there's a cop car. If I'm on the freeway, I slow down a little bit. I'm hopefully not going to hurt anybody. Okay, somebody else, person of color, someone who's been incarcerated, here's a siren. Someone who's been, let's say, close to acts of violence in their own community and they hear a siren, I just wonder the effects of that. You live in Minneapolis, and the name George Floyd is now, I think, well-known around the world, where there was a, 
an act on the part of four police officers and one in particular who really was the main executor of violence in that executor of this young of this man um, in which he was they related to him in an extremely dehumanizing way not as though he was a human being as though he was an animal and they killed him on the street and of course those officers were convicted of this crime that happened as I recall in our prior conversations very close to your home in your community George Floyd's murder and the ensuing violence that occurred, including at peaceful protests. If you're open to it, to sharing about this, put your personal experience of it, matters of triggers and trauma in a community, let alone in an institutional environment, but in a community. And how, what that, if you, again, for many of us, we don't have the cultural experience to, to feel it, to know it in our own tissues. Please, if you're open to it, Ada, share with us about this. Absolutely. So thinking about what happened in Minneapolis and policing and those sirens that happened um, is so important as a part of this conversation because it's the other arm of incarceration. The police in the streets and in the communities are the arm that is feeding the mouth of incarceration. And so it's really um, not useful to only think about the prisons without taking this conversation to the community. So as you mentioned, I am here in Minneapolis. I officially became a resident once again of Minneapolis in May 2020, just a few weeks before George Floyd was murdered, less than two miles from where I live and less than two blocks from where my father has lived for my whole life. Um, so that experience itself was extremely traumatizing. Um, seeing someone so brutally dehumanized and their life so unvalued and just this complete disregard for human life um, so blatantly out in the community and then everything that happened afterwards. So as I was here, um, right in my neighborhood, there were riots, there were interactions with the police, we had at different points um, the city was completely occupied by the police. We had tanks on my street. Uh, we had police on every corner. And it was such a, hard to describe in some ways, but just kind of crazy experience because here we are as a community reeling from an act of violence. Some harm was caused. It was caused and a lot of people were hurt by it. A lot of people saw it and it deeply impacted the community. And then how did the city address that harm? By pouring more police into the situation. So then we as a community were not only reeling from this blatant act of violence, then we were doubled down with more police presence and more police aggression and more police violence. And um, as we saw in the news, or at least I think people were seeing in the news, it escalated and escalated and escalated. And there were some personal experiences that I had, um, including going to a peaceful protest, very specifically a peaceful protest. I didn't want to get out there in the demonstrations that were kind of clashing um, with the police. I wanted to um, show my solidarity in a very specifically a peace walk 
And even in that very peaceful environment, you know, people were singing, people were peacefully demonstrating, walking through the city together. Um, a semi-truck drove through the crowd of peaceful protesters. And then as individuals were trying to get away from the semi-truck, we were met by police shooting rubber bullets and spraying the crowd of peaceful protesters with tear gas. And then mass amounts of people were arrested. And, you know, the, the violence, the pain, the trauma just got compounded and compounded and compounded. And so as we're sitting here talking about both prisons and trauma and these, you know, related things, it becomes, I think, easier to see the bridge with how the police are within the community and the impact that even these, you know, interactions on the local level, the impact that can have on someone's life. So as we were participating in these peaceful protests and then people are getting brutalized by the police and people are getting arrested. So then someone gets arrested and now they're back involved with the criminal legal system. And it is way too easy once someone is involved in the legal system for that to continue to be something that either is preventing them from future opportunities or removing them again from their community. It's very scary and there's so much uncertainty for the family members, for the community members, and it's just this kind of feedback loop that keeps happening with incarceration and over-policing. And, you know, my particular perspective on both trauma, incarceration, healing, violence, and liberation and healing from that, um, I think made the experience of being here in Minneapolis that much more frustrating because I have seen the right way, I believe, to address harm. I have seen how what is required for an individual to find that reconciliation, for someone to feel safe and heard, for harm to be acknowledged and for people to heal from that harm. And here in Minneapolis, pretty much the exact opposite happened from the government officials and the people in power. Instead of acknowledging the harm, instead of trying to cultivate any sort of sense of safety or acknowledging what was done, there was a complete denial and again, just kind of a, um, overly policing response. So instead of, you know, giving even the community space to grieve and do this work as a community, healing work as a community, instead we're under surveillance more than ever. So here in Minneapolis still, there's constant police surveillance happening. It's really common that um, police planes and helicopters will be still circling the area. Um, anytime there are sirens, I certainly, you know, I can feel that like, oh boy, what is it this time? What did they do now? And um, it's, it's very re-triggering. And that's where, again, I feel like there's a, a need and an opportunity for people to get involved in the community in that kind of way of creating spaces where individuals can process and heal and connect human to human. And 
as we've seen kind of throughout the world, there was a call to action. You know, what happened in Minneapolis was not unique to Minneapolis. This happens all over in America, as well as abroad. Racism is everywhere and never takes a day off. And there's, I think, now more than ever, um, a call to action for people who don't have this experience that I do, who can hear the sirens go off and not think otherwise, who've never had someone they loved attacked by the police or never felt like the police were going after them to get involved, to start to wake up, to start to be having conversations about this and start to be educating themselves about these issues and understanding that, um, you know, that even if these issues aren't impacting you directly, this is bringing our society down, you know, that in our communities, um, I think it's true that when we all do better, we all do better. And just as if certain parts of our population are getting systemically oppressed or brutalized or experiencing significant amounts of violence, that is bringing all of us down on some level. And we can see that now, how in California there have been, um, there's this narrative around rises in crime and you know, violence in communities. And my belief is that without um, people who aren't directly impacted by that, getting involved and doing work around it and getting involved in policies around it and holding people in power accountable, those issues will continue to impact everybody. Whether you're feeling that impact um, from, you know, an economic sense or from, again, the like personal involvement in the community sense. I'm going to make a connection back to yoga a little bit here. Um, and that is we find in yoga practices, sometimes they help us to better prepare for difficult situations in our lives. And I can imagine yoga being a helpful resource in communities where one is facing such conditions, being able to navigate it a little more with a few more resources. But there's another side of that, regardless, there you are in a peaceful protest singing, um, deliberately not choosing to go to the more confrontational demonstration, and no less um, subject to violence. There's a, in our earlier, my earlier work working with yoga in prisons, uh, yoga in juvenile institutions as well. At first, most of the staff were very skeptical and even opposed to it. They started to see the effects of it, in, in some ways making their jobs easier because things like behavioral incidents diminished. They liked that. The, 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 the incarcerated people we were working with were less prone to reaction to things that were happening and a little bit more likely to take a couple of breaths before doing something that could be a problem. This, in some cases, motivated some of the staff to join in the classes that we were there teaching to the incarcerated people. The staff wanted to take those classes. And this led in some institutions to the staff requesting their own classes. Will you please come in and teach us yoga because we want to be less reactive. And you might know of Shannon McQuaid's work in Santa Cruz when you were here. She started working with yoga for first responders, with firefighters, and then extended, expanded this to, to law enforcement. I'm going to go a little bit more, more with this. That is... 
We also find yoga in the military, and we clearly have highly militarized police departments now across the U.S., including using former military weaponry and all, including some of the tanks that they drive, their, their personnel carriers. City police departments using formerly U.S. military Department of Defense equipment um, in militarized departments. So um, in the military, we find yoga at sort of two ends of the, of, the, of the experience. One is, and I'm not making this up, using yoga to help um, um, snipers be more effective in shooting. So take a deep breath in, exhale the breath out, calm, relaxed, pull the trigger so you're more accurate in killing. I'm not making this up. At the other end of the military experience are the soldiers coming home from battlefields, maimed, physically, emotionally, psychologically maimed, and with deeply embodied trauma, deep, chronic, as I hear a helicopter going over your house, I think. Um... Uh, it reminds me, by the way, a brief non sequitur here is that I lived in Venice, California for many years during the height of the gang wars, uh, a block away from um, the neighborhood where uh, the African American gang, the Shoreline Crips, and the Latino gang, um, Venetia 13, V13, both very, very old gangs whose traditional enemies have been far away, they got into a gang war against each other, and it was horrific. And every every night, we'd hear a pattern of a couple of popping sounds, and within minutes, helicopters overhead. And then, usually after 20, minute, 20, 20 or 30, oh, a loss of sirens. And then after about 20 or 30 minutes beyond that, utter quiet, as somehow it was, it was resolved. So I hear helicopters... Uh, still, it always makes me wonder about the triggers. So, well, last point about this then is the other end of the continuum of the rather the the trajectory in the military is in places like the Palo Alto Veterans Hospital, where yoga and meditation are being taken in are being shared to help people deal with PTSD, with chronic PTSD. Indeed, Brendan Abram, who wrote the book Teaching Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, himself a former uh, soldier, Canadian peacekeeper in Bosnia, traumatized by the experience, goes down a really difficult path after that, eventually finds yoga helping him to heal. So just talking for a moment, whether it's about incarcerated people, those in the community, and in both let's call it everyone in the community, including potentially police. I'm wondering about your perspective on that. And utilizing yoga for helping people to develop resilience, get greater capacity for what we might call, I don't know, loving kindness and mutual respect and regard in the world. Is this fantasy? Is this possibility? Uh, what is your thinking about this, Ayla? I think it's absolute possibility. And in a lot of instances, it's reality. These things are happening. So again, I've seen kind of this transpire in certain environments. And then after being in Minneapolis throughout this time, um, the last two years since George Floyd was murdered and the incidents that have continued to happen afterwards. So there have been multiple murders by the police of black men since George Floyd was killed. And part of what, um, so on a personal level, part of where I feel 
um, this to be extremely true is that my practices really helped carry me through that time, coming back to love and kindness, coming back to compassion, not just for myself, but for the individuals who are perpetrating this violence and, and being able to recognize that in order to do this type of violence, you have to be hurting inside. You can't, like, you can't go out and do that. You can't go out and kneel on someone's neck for four minutes and be well. That does not happen. These things don't coexist together. And so coming back to the practices of compassion, loving kindness, and certainly building up this sense of resiliency um, has been crucial for me. And I believe is part of what could help kind of shift things um, if there's enough people willing to go there. So part of what you brought up, I appreciate too about, you know, in the juvenile hall and how some of the prison staff or uh, juvenile hall staff would get interested. And um, that just reminded me of, you know, when I was talking earlier about humanization and um, I think police in this country are often also dehumanized. And I had to really sit with myself and look at the ways I was doing that as well. We hear things like calling pig, calling cops pigs or, you know, just dehumanizing. They get dehumanized as well. And I truly believe that the same negative effects that happen when an individual who is experiencing incarceration gets dehumanized, meaning, you know, low sense of self, violence, um, you know, sense of like needing to have power over someone to try and reinforce that identity. I think those same things happen as police or individuals are dehumanized in the community. And so as I say that, that was a really hard point for me to kind of come around to just after seeing so much violence in my community being perpetuated by one particular group of people and understanding again this whole system that supports this type of violence and type of oppression and terror in certain communities and I think that if we're not able to kind of extend out in both directions the humanization the trying to connect with people as people the understanding that if someone is doing violence or causing harm something has happened to them that this individual needs support they don't actually need to be having their identity diminished and being objectified and dehumanized um, so I think that there's a real opportunity and that's hard that's really hard to do especially in an environment where it's still so intense but I think that's really necessary and one of the other things I wanted to speak on just because of this particular group that um, will be listening to this podcast is about how as yoga teachers, um, you know, we there's a need to be aware of and conscious of these things with your yoga classes in order to make them truly accessible. So for me personally, again, my yoga and meditation practices allowed me to get through this very intense tough time it helped me build my personal capacity my resiliency it helped to soothe my nervous system when it was activated and it ultimately helped me get to um, a much better perspective where i was able to 
try to humanize and extend compassion in all directions. And I know for myself personally, the idea of going to a public yoga class during that time was horrifying. Like that wouldn't happen either. And part of why that was for me personally is this feeling of like, and if I go to a yoga class and I'm carrying all of this intensity in my body, I'm sifting through so much emotional intensity and I just saw all sorts of violence. Is that going to be safe there? Is that going to be okay? Is that going to be acknowledged? Or is that going to just get, you know, overshadowed by asana or chanting or, you know, whatever comes up in the yoga class. And unfortunately, in some of my experiences with public yoga classes, it hasn't always felt welcomed. It hasn't always felt like I can trust that the yoga teacher can hold what we're coming into class with. And so I feel very fortunate that I'm a yoga teacher, so I could teach myself and continue to have a practice throughout that time. But for yoga teachers who want to be culturally competent, who want to be responsive to this particular moment we're in where racialized issues and just suffering is so intense, I do think that there's um, some work that we all need to do around creating actually safe and inclusive spaces where people can come and let some of that move through us and let some of that process. And... Yeah, I just, I feel like that's something as a community, as a yoga community or a spiritual community needs to be talked about and addressed more. Please tell us a bit of your, some of your thoughts on how teachers might best develop what you refer to as cultural competence and making it something that's practical for, say, a yoga teacher holding space of a class. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to... Um, again, I keep coming back to, I feel like, education and doing work outside of those spaces. So I think everybody who wants to be involved in any sort of liberatory work, if you want you know, personal liberation, if you're on that path to enlightenment, if you're you know, looking to get woke or whatever it is, I think you also need to, again, be acknowledging all these ways and in all these places that people are not liberated and build up your understanding and knowledge of that even before you're teaching or while you're teaching because you might be already on the teaching path and, and starting to come to these things. But I think there's definitely education that needs to be happening outside of the classroom, outside of the yoga studio. And then when actually in a yoga class, I think there are plenty of things that teachers can be doing that help to set the tone. And I know certainly in my teacher training experience, we touched on quite a few of these about, again, boundaries, safe mechanics, making sure to ask permission. One of the most, I think, triggering things that a yoga teacher can do even if there's really good intention but is to touch people without permission and that certainly has happened to me too many times in yoga classes where I might be you know just as you can probably get a sense of from this conversation there was a lot going on for me here in Minneapolis and in my body and if I'm going to a yoga class and you know teacher might think that oh nice soothing gentle you know pressing on my hips and child's pose or some sort of you know touch that 
you know, we think people really would love having someone cross that physical boundary without permission just reinforces that I'm not safe. I don't have boundaries. People don't respect my personal autonomy. And I know, or at least I believe many yoga teachers would never actually want someone to have that experience in their class. So I think there are some kind of tactical ways about teaching and permission. Um, but I also think there's kind of a bigger conversation that needs to be happening around the actual accessibility of yoga. So, you know, yoga classes cost usually a pretty penny. And again, if we really want to be creating spaces that are allowing for people to come and do their personal work and to feel better and to heal as a collective, um, we need to make sure that individuals who are most impacted by these violent systems can show up and be there. And so sometimes cost is prohibitive. I think sometimes the culture that comes along with yoga can sometimes feel um, exclusionary that, you know, I, oh man, if I don't have those like right pants or I got a hole in my pants today, like you feel these sort of like, oh, am I going to really fit? I don't have that like special yoga mat, you know, all these different ways that I think we see in yoga. Um, it's, it's not actually about what, what we're really wanting to be there for. And so I think addressing some of those things and, you know, I think within, the spaces as well again just acknowledging what is going on the moment we're in um these little things i mean they maybe they're not little maybe they are but these are some things that certainly would have helped me in many yoga classes feel more comfortable and part of that community instead of unfortunately it's been more of my experience of feeling like mm, I don't really see myself here like this really these don't necessarily feel like my people or like my place and that's part of kind of looping all the way back to the beginning part of the conversation that's also part of why I got so motivated really from the beginning to bring yoga into other environments so I am a yoga teacher and I have never taught in a studio and that's because that is in an environment that I initially felt very comfortable going to and so that's why I felt motivated to try and find ways to get yoga out there into different communities that either I was a part of or that I knew would really be benefiting from sharing in these practices together. How do you think, and maybe this is also something you might think of from your perspective with your degree in journalism and your experience with media and social media and all, what are the steps do you think to helping, or sorry, let me rephrase this, what do you think can be better done in the yoga community around, uh, around making yoga more accessible, making it uh, more to, to help them with cultural competence, with helping such that everyone can feel welcome in a class and recognized in a class and, and not have the feeling that they should just stay at home and do their personal practice there. What, what can, should be done to sort of educate the community, train the community, reorient the community, if you will? Well, I do think that 
there are some things that are happening within the yoga community that we can point to. So one that I feel like is kind of significant is even just seeing different types of bodies represented in yoga magazines and yoga books and yoga posts and yoga advertisements for those yoga pants, you know, that seeing people who are not the kind of normal version of a yogi that we think of, or like, you know, particular type of body type or um, disposition, you know, seeing other people represented, I think is huge. And again, I just keep coming back to there's work as a community and as a collective that we need to be doing around this. And that work is around education, it's around calling out behaviors or things when we see it, holding each other accountable, um, educating ourselves, taking in resources, listening to people who are speaking up about these things, making a point to listen to people of color or individuals who are saying, you know, this doesn't feel right to me or I don't really like that. Um, I think that <clears throat> they're also... Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, it comes back to education, I think, over and over again. And with Boundless Freedom Project, so Boundless Freedom Project, um, as you mentioned, we've got programs inside the prisons, and then we also work to support individuals after they have been um, out of the prisons. And, uh, you know, one of the things that um, has at times been quite disappointing is we as an organization we've reached out to some very notable um, meditation centers or groups or you know practicing environments trying to build a connection um, with our community trying to uh, reintegrate some individuals because you know part of what um, part of what happens when someone is released from prison is even if they're finished with their sentence, the time they've served, there's still so much stigma and judgment and misperception that they have to try and uh, overcome. And so part of what we have done with Boundless Freedom Project is reach out to some very notable um, organizations or centers that kind of pride themselves on being very accessible for the people type of environments and even in those like for the people type of environments there's all this misconception and fear around letting system impacted people become part of the community and the work around that that needs to happen I think is needing to really check ourselves and check our values and our intentions you know so often people might have this great intention like okay we're a you know center that's really for the people and we want to make yoga and meditation accessible but then when it comes time to open your doors to someone who you know has a criminal record or who has been incarcerated there's all this fear and apprehension and so there needs to be a lot of work done around that. And I think part of that is really putting into action our values. It's not enough to say, you know, loving kindness to all beings. And then if, you know, someone who is fully tattooed shows up in your yoga class and puts your mat next to you, and then you like start to feel uncomfortable and might want to move, you know, checking that part of you that has a, 
uh, perception or his having a reaction to individuals. And a lot of that work is personal. A lot of that is individual. A lot of that you can't just, you know, take class and, and then you're done. It's, it's experiential and it comes up in a lot of different ways. But I feel that if a teacher or a practitioner really wants to actually be on this path towards liberation, enlightenment, and well-being for all, that there needs to be a lot of work done around that. Because the more we continue to keep people isolated from us or separate or think that they're the worst thing that they've done, we just continue to reinforce this negative part of our society that keeps people disconnected and it keeps people from feeling safe and it keeps people from accessing these tools that we know benefit us and will benefit our society. There's some um, strong, powerful, we can call them yoga institutions, uh, influential centers, magazines, um, podcasts, um, if you look at the cover of Yoga Journal magazine across the span of the last 30 years, it's primarily physically fit young white women on the cover. More recently, there's been a sprinkling of covers with primarily women of color, including also sometimes people who don't have, let's just say, thin, idealized, model-esque bodies, as you would see on the cover of Vogue magazine. But there are, again, that's a very recent change. The substance of contents of the magazine sometimes reflecting that shift, but not thoroughly, I would suggest. Then we look, which is, I'm suggesting that Yoga Journal is one example, and they're one of the dominant sources of media out there in the yoga realm, has taken some steps, maybe not far enough, but taking some steps in the direction I, think I hear you suggesting. But then I think also of places like the, the institutes, Kripalu uh, in Western Massachusetts, Omega in New York, uh, Esalen Institute here in California, Hollyhock in British Columbia, uh, the conferences. I know that many, many are now sort of on hold in the pandemic plague COVID realm world, but they'll return at some point in some way, even if, well, they are online. How much space time is being given to, well, let's say, boundless freedom? And other such organizations that could come in and do in-services make it also a part of your viability model, financial viability model, as a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, where they could be helping to support that nonprofit mission of your work around addressing matters of violence and empowerment and all the other various issues that you address. So I would love to see that happen. I also just want to highlight for a moment that something that you've shared with me before, that your own staff at Boundless Freedom Project are people who've been formerly incarcerated. That they It's not theoretical, abstract for them. It's part of who they are, what their life has been. And to be able to see, as I'm imagining right now, those very people, yourself and those very other people that work with you and not just on your staff but in support roles as volunteers, showing up at conferences, showing up at yoga studios that are seriously interested in cultural competence and helping to make their teaching staff, uh, helping to educate them uh, in in these kinds of ways. It would be wonderful to see that kind of, of work happening. I'm also really excited uh, to have a future episode here with you, Ayla, with uh, some of your staff participating in more of a conversation, uh, gaining their perspectives. Again, people who've been incarcerated in very difficult situations in their lives, um, 
to explore more deeply these various kinds of questions, which so I've written down in my own notes as we've been talking a number of times the word ahimsa, not hurting. That so much of what you're doing seems to me to keep coming back and back and back to the question of nonviolence, of not hurting, in the various ways that many of us also unconsciously, unintentionally hurt by virtue of language, of assumption, of privilege, and the various ways that I think we can all better address in our personal lives. I feel very inspired by your work, Ayla, and lucky to be able to engage with you here and now and other ways. It was wonderful to see you here recently in classes in Santa Cruz, California. I'd love you to share a little bit more about how people can plug into Boundless Freedom Project, your work, what you're offering. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, and as kind of a last piece around that as well, I think what um, we started to talk about having conversations like this, sharing platforms with individuals who are engaged in this work and allowing ourselves the opportunity to change our mind about what we think and what we perceive is um, a big piece of it. And so I really look forward to bringing back some of my team members to share their experiences and help shift some of this perception that individuals might have about incarceration or prisons and who is committing crimes and, and what those people are like and what they have to offer to our society and community. Um, if you are interested in learning more about Boundless Freedom Project or getting involved, whether you're in California or not, we are happy to welcome you into our community and support you on this path. Um, you can connect with us via our website, sign up for our newsletter. Our website is www.boundlessfreedom.org. You can also connect with us on social media. We're active on Instagram as Boundless Freedom Project. We also have a YouTube channel where you can hear some great stories from individuals who have been part of our programs as well as do some practices with us. We also have a weekly sitting group that meets every Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Um, and everybody's welcome to join. We are very, we try to walk the walk of inclusivity and all these things we talked about here today. And so if you're interested, please do reach out and get involved. And we look forward to introducing your listeners and anyone here to more of Boundless Freedom Project. All of those resources Ayla just mentioned and more will be in the show notes on the Yoga Room Podcast website with links to all of those resources, more information about how you can get involved, how you can be supportive, and that support might very well involve uh, writing a check or making other financial donations. They're a nonprofit 501c3 organization. You can get a tax deduction for that as well as a conscience boost with that. Ayla, thank you so much for sharing your time, your energy, your inspiration, your really, really important work out in the world. I feel really lucky to know you again and and, uh, to be able to share uh, with you in this. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Please see the show notes for links and resources from today's show as well as links to our sponsors of this episode. If you're enjoying or learning from the Yoga Room Podcast, please tell your friends and others who might be interested. You can also subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you never miss anything. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review the show to support us in sharing healthy practices and engaging ideas from around the world. And again, thank you for joining us today.